Nobody ever had a thought that came to them from out of the blue. It came to them because of the work that goes on in their cranium command. Sir, pardon me. You, sir, there. Yes, sir. Could you give us a little help today? Oh, yes, sir. Well, you're, wait a minute, you're Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is. Hold on, Walter, can you just a moment? <laughs> How you doing? Name's Robin. Nice to be, but you can call me Chuck. <laughs> Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 648, and together we'll celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook, community books, audio tours, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. Former Walt Disney Imagineering executive Theron Skies joins me this week to discuss his career at WDI in the U.S., overseas, and at sea, including amazing stories as well as practical advice you can use. I'll then have our Disney trivia question of the week and more updates at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Before we get into the interview, I want to quickly apologize for the quality of the audio, which is clearly not up to normal standards for the show. There was an unfortunate technical issue that took place just as we started to record. So I'd ask that you please excuse and forgive the quality of the audio itself, but I hope that you enjoy the conversation. You can design and create and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it takes people to make the dream a reality. We know that Walt did not do it alone. He always trusted in and relied on his teams, employees, business partners, and yes, his family to transform his visions into reality. And I think that philosophy remains the cornerstone of the Walt Disney Company and doesn't just trickle down through all of its cast members, but really is the culture of the people who have continued in Walt's legacy and dream and vision. I think inspiration and motivation and values and vision and behaviors over intention are some of the hallmarks of not just great leaders, but I think great cast members. And my next guest has demonstrated all of these during his very long and storied career at the Disney companies. From big dreams to big projects, Theron Skies has not only been living his dream, but helping to make dreams come true for guests around the world. And I'm excited to have him join me on the show today to share some of his stories and his lessons. Welcome to the show, Theron. Thanks so much, Lou. It is a real pleasure to be here. And if you've ever talked to anyone who is in the part of the business that, I, that I'm that i in, Imagineering or experience, creation, you probably realize, and your, as your audience does, that we love to talk about this type of thing because we're fans too, right? <laughs> we build it because we love to go and experience it as well. Excellent. I am I am excited because, again, I know uh, a little bit sort of surface level of some of the roles that you have had. But look, everyone 
superhero or otherwise, has an origin story, of which I am big fans of. So what's yours? Like, what is your origin story? Take me back to the beginning. Little Theron drawing in his room, Lego, <laughs> building attractions in the garage or basement, or, you know, even just watching Disney movies. Well, you know, it would be a really cool story if I could add something about gamma radiation or a spider bite or something <laughs> like that. But I'm, sadly, the, the origin story doesn't contain anything that cool. But uh, but you did mention Legos and Legos were definitely a big part of of uh, my growing up life. Um, and so I, I we would uh, my grandmother would watch us after our uh, grade school was over. And um, we, I just have memories of, of literally taking over whole rooms and building uh, forts with cushions and blankets and Lego cities and uh, some really great uh, creativity there. Um, I also remember um, drawing pictures out of um, the encyclopedia. Um, now, there are probably some of your listeners that <laughs> understand that an encyclopedia is something you see online, but there was actually a, a day and a time back in the Stone Age where these were a collection of printed and bound books, and you could find uh, a little something on everything there, and, and including some really great uh, images. So I would draw pictures that I saw in the encyclopedia, which was pretty cool. But, but you know, a, a seminal moment in my life was... Uh, 1977, I was 10 years old and Star Wars came out right now. For those of you that were uh, were not born uh, that long ago, uh, that's episode four, A New Hope. Uh, but back in the day, that was the, the thing that changed the cinematic universe forever. Um, and uh, I, I remember as a, a child going and seeing that movie many, many times, as many times as I could. Um, as many times as I could uh, bum the money off of somebody to go <laughs> to go get it, you know, pay for it. Uh, but uh, I didn't know exactly what that was, but I knew that 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 was what I wanted to do um, with my career, with my life. And um, what I determined uh, over time, obviously, was that that uh, was creating an experience, creating an environment. So, and we had very much, you know, and we're about the same age. We all sort of remember that first time we saw Star Wars and the Star Destroyer came overhead and, and all these years mm -hmm. later, it is, it is. So I'll talk about these, these moments that helped to direct the, the course of our future. But you also had the, the benefit and I think the blessing of not just having support from your family, but your, your dad was in construction, right? So you were learning real world beyond the little the little Legos, you were sort of learning real world construction techniques, you know, along with your dad, which had to have been great too. Yes, that, that was a very foundational in a sense, because not only did it uh, teach me to value hard work, but it also uh, really illustrated the joy of making something with your hands. So figuring out something with your mind but then actually having the uh, the craftsmanship to to uh, to build it with your hands um, was fantastic. So those three elements: value of hard work, um, understanding, imagining in your mind, um, uh, putting pen to paper to capture how to create something, and then physically building it in dimensions with uh, many different types of materials, uh, invaluable uh, to form uh, forming what I would do in my life. Because I think most of your audience members know as an Imagineer, you're not only dreaming, but you're also doing, right? That's Walt's vision. 
and uh, and it's it's completely inherent in the name. Uh, imagineering is imagination and engineering, the combination of technical and non-technical dreaming and doing. And uh, and as an imagineer, that's that's the brilliance of the role. Whether you're in a, a, um, a non-technical role like a creative or a technical role like design or or delivery, um, part of the uh, of, of the disciplines that you have to deliver these fantastic worlds and characters. So growing up that way um, led me right into um, the creative executive role, which was really overseeing the design and development of these incredible attractions and hotels and resorts and and uh, eventually cruise ships, um, uh, retail dining and entertainment like Disney Springs. And, uh, and, and that was really fun because you, again, not only get to dream up these great places, you're doing so for a business, right? Let's not fool ourselves. This is show business. Uh, and I am a designer, not an artist. Very, very big difference. Designers use art, but uh, designers create things that are functional, that are beautiful, um, and that make money. Right? That's look, that shouldn't be anything. That's a, a bad word. It's 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 what we it's what we create. It's what we do. So that was a really neat uh, role. Very fascinating because you're combining all of these skills really into into one uh, one thing. And there's only a few places on the planet you can do that. So very. Uh, blessed to be able to do that with Imagineering. So as you turn the page from, you know, kid with a dream to taking those next step, um, take me sort of through the process, you know, whether it was the combination of, of education and attitude and, and where it goes from hobby to career and then how that path leads you over to your first role at Disney. Great question. Um, well, I mentioned my my love of Star Wars and and that really being a catalyst that propelled me uh, into my career. Um, at the time, I thought it was movies, right? So, uh, a kid growing up in a small town in Montana, I took art all through uh, high school and into my first two years of college, um, uh, and, and pursued you know how to be a better artist, a better artisan, how to paint, how to sculpt, all those things. And then my background in construction, it naturally those two combinations led me to a role. We moved to Orlando uh, during the late 80s, which was Hollywood East, right? Uh, Universal, Disney, everybody was building studios and, and sort of uh, focusing the movie industry uh, here. And um, I, I got the opportunity to, to move into that field and um, as, a, as a scenic uh, artist, um, a sculptor, uh, set design, and um, and that's kind of how I got my feet wet. I, I kind of got started, and I actually was so busy uh, doing that. Uh, I had gotten uh, married, of course. We started having children, and my life got so busy. I never went back to school, um, and I never really kind of finished my degree. But rather than that, I actually got to work alongside of these incredible masters uh, that that taught me these incredible skills. Um, uh, some really great heroes of the of the of the industry i really had the ability to work with and and it was through that ability of of sculpture actually that got me my first job uh, in the themed entertainment industry with universal and that was um universal studios uh, base park here in orlando uh that there's a this gigantic lagoon in the middle of the park um, many people have been there or have seen pictures of it know that 
And my first role was um, actually building all of the artificial rock work around that lagoon. We also did some work in ET. And that was the first time I actually uh, took my sculpting skill that was used in film and television, which, you know, that stuff just gets recycled after you're done shooting. And frankly, the, the general public never really gets to see it or touch it or, you know. So moving to a more permanent medium like theme parks was a, was a real cool switch for me. It was uh, much more uh, lasting because even after, what, 30 years or so, you can just go look in the theme park and, and see that work. Yeah, and so talk quickly about the the actual transition to getting over to Disney because I I, I did you know being a former attorney I, I did my research and you talk <laughs> about something that I think is so important which is not just about the importance of of networking and and sharing what your vision is and the things that you want to do but the 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 combination of hard work and not burning bridges and doing what you need to do in order to advance? Because I think that's really important, and, and especially in, in 2021, where, look, when I was a kid, and I think you were, we were sort of told you have to go to school, get a degree, get a job, and that's sort of the, the path that you take. But having not finished school, it shows the importance of the hustle and the hard work and you know putting in the time and the hours and connecting with other people as well. Absolutely. Um I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of students, um, lecture at a couple of different universities. And I have, of course, uh, part of my, my company that I own now, I do uh, quite a lot of career coaching. And one thing that, that I, I always have said is that the most successful people, and, and when I say successful, I don't mean money. I mean the people that are the most satisfied with what they do. They get the most meaning out of their lives. That to me is true success. Um, are the people that adopt a spirit of learning, right? And never stop learning. So there, as you mentioned, I see that there's a couple of major routes to get to that destination, that career, that, that uh, journey in your life where you really get a lot of meaning out of what you do. You could t definitely take the academic route. Nothing wrong with that at all. That obviously requires uh, a mindset and a focus on learning. But where some students kind of go wrong is that when they get that MBA or, or that, you know, doctorate or master's degree, somehow in their mind, they feel like that's all the learning I need. I've arrived and now I can just show up and and, and do what I was trained to do. And the reality, the, the, the rubber hitting the road, the boots on the ground reality is if you don't learn, adapt and implement, you will you will never achieve what you wanted to achieve. Um, so whether you go the academic route or whether you go sort of a more trades route where you're self-taught, you have to have a hunger for learning. And I always recommend that people adopt the mindset that you can learn from everybody. It doesn't matter what that person's role is in the hierarchy or the economy of the, of the globe. That individual could be in sanitation. They could be cleaning uh, office buildings or schools or whatever. They may have an insight on life, on something that uh, so fundamentally impacts you and changes you and helps you think about things that that you, if you were not looking for that lesson from the unlikely sources, you would have missed the opportunity to gain real wisdom. So that's, that is a principle that I teach, that I try to live my life by, is learn, adapt, and implement. 
Um, and you can really only do that when you choose to, to step out, right? To take a risk, to try something you haven't tried before. And when you do that, you put yourself in a position where, you know, holy cow, I haven't done this before. So I've got to learn and I've got to adapt everything I learn. And sometimes that means adapting old mindsets that worked for me before, but won't work now. And the only way to lock those learnings in is to implement, is to do. And that comes with the risk of failure. And what unfortunately our society teaches people is that failure is bad. And uh, what I try to teach people is that failure is good. You want to fail fast, fail early, learn from those mistakes, adapt, and then re-implement. And frankly, bringing it back to Imagineering, that is the culture. Uh, the culture is risk-taking. The culture is creating something that's never been done before. It's uh, the, the hardest, most difficult thing about creating an experience, whether it's Universal Creative, whether it's Merlin, wherever, it doesn't matter what it is, is, is um, generating real awe, real wonder in a human being is extremely difficult in the 21st century. And that's what we're all going after, right? Is creating those genuine moments of, of true wonder. Um, almost impossible to do, but not impossible. Yeah. And there's no class. You don't take a class in school on how to create wonder. But I love, I, I love and I subscribe to and agree with your philosophy. I, I'm the kind of person that, you know, I try to learn something new every single day. And then you say yes. And then you figure out how to do it. You know, you build your wings on the way down. <laughs> that's uh, right. On the way down. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's fast forward to the late 80s and you get your first role at Disney. How and why do you end up at Disney's Hollywood MGM Studios? And what's your first role with the company? Excellent. Uh, you had mentioned uh, networking, and and that leads me to never burn a bridge, right? So in that first uh, job at Universal Studios, I met a gentleman named Jolt Horme, uh, fairly well known uh, name within the uh, Disney and, and within Imagineering. He and I worked at Universal together. He was an incredible artist, incredible sculptor. I happened to be pretty good at managing things and and was you know adapting my skills. He taught me a lot. We separated ways. He went to work on uh, Euro Disneyland. I went back into film and television. Got a call out of the blue from Jolt. Hey, I'm in Paris. I really need help with this rock work. Would you consider coming? That was in uh, 90, 91, I believe. So that was my, actually my very first job with Imagineering was at Euro Disneyland Imagineering. I got the incredible honor of doing uh, art directing all of the rock work in Pirates of the Caribbean. So that was all of the inside rock work, all of the exterior rock work. So that officially was my first uh, role. When I came back to the US, um, Imagineering Disney wasn't hiring. So I spent five years in um, a startup company doing product development, marketing design, which was an incredible experience. It was blending art and business in a way that I'd never done before. And in 97, uh, that company was sold off. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to knock on the door at Imagineering. They were hiring. And I, I uh, came on uh, for a year as a consultant. Now, here's the trick. And this is a good lesson for, for people who you know don't think that they should pay their dues, quote unquote. They think that's an antiquated kind of mindset. Well, I got hired uh, to completely redesign the back lot at Disney MGM Studios and to actually be the field art director who uh, showed up on site 
to direct all of this work, right? Uh, the bricks, the sculpting, I mean, all that stuff, to, to, you know, all these facades. Well, the only challenge for me was that was at night. That was a third shift job. So uh, not only was it physically difficult, which that's not a big deal, but I'd show up at 11, I'd work till six, and then I'd go home. And then what occurred to me was, I don't ever get to meet any of the other Imagineers, anybody at Disney. I'm completely isolated. And if I have any hope of, of a longer career here, I need to change this up. So I met with my leader and I met with the, the leader that hired me, um, Barbara Maxwell, incredible leader um, at that particular time in the company's history. And I said, look, Barbara, you know, um, nobody's going to know my range of skills. I can do a lot more than just field art direct. And uh, between myself and the art director at the studios at the time, they said, well, sure. Well, why don't you do some design work, production design, illustration? So uh, I would work all night. I would bring a change of clothes. I would do a little bird bath in the sink in the morning uh, around 6 a.m., put on a fresh shirt and a fresh pair of jeans. And I would uh, hit the drafting uh, board and I would do production design work till, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon. I was clocking about 100 hours a week. Fantastic for the paycheck. Horrible for the for the physical body, <laughs> um, but that uh, really paid off because when it was time to look for hiring uh, a new art director for the studios, um, uh, I just slipped naturally into that role. And and as they say, my uh, twenty three year Disney career uh, started there. Yeah, you put about twenty two of those years in in the first <laughs> in the first year. You know that's what hustle <laughs> looks like. You know, people use the word hustle. That's exactly what hustle looks like. So. You go from working on the backlot tour in the middle of the night to working on, you know, a few semi-well-known attractions like Tower of Terror, Fantasmic, Magic of Disney Animation. Talk about some of, you know, I understand it's a team effort, but some of the, the roles that you had and your handiwork in those attractions. You know, working at uh, the studios was you know, I, I don't, looking back now, I, I couldn't have uh, crafted a better first job or first role for myself uh, than that one. And and um, so grateful because coming into Imagineering, I wasn't one of those, um, you know, college students who got a job working in the park and, um, and which gives you such an important um, boots on the ground understanding of how the business works. And uh, so in a sense, when I got hired as an Imagineer, I looked at it as I, it was a disadvantage for me because I, I didn't have experience. I didn't know how the business ran. Were I didn't know what it was Did like. Did you go to the parks like growing up or when you moved yes. to Orlando? Like, were you a fan of the? Absolutely. Yeah, a fan. Uh, I couldn't afford to go to the parks a lot, but, uh, you know, it was like the big Christmas, you know, you save all year and you go there, even though we lived here. But but yeah, I, we, I was uh, a fan. I enjoyed the experience, no doubt. But I didn't understand the business. I didn't understand what it took. And to be a real designer for Imagineering, you, you don't just get to sit back and go, oh, $200 million for an attraction. That's my personal art fund. You know, I can create whatever story I want. You have to remember, this is show business. So when you do something in a park, it has to function as a business. You're in a sense, and I, and I really mentor uh, uh, young Imagineers and and uh, new professionals in this industry to never forget the frontline employee. That cast member is the most important key to delivering the story that you're designing. They're the most important. And if you're standing at a ride dispatch station or you're in a, a, a food location, 
you know, a cash register or, or if you're um, in a retail space somewhere, if that environment, if you have to reach too far for something for too long or the music track is only 30 minute loop and you get fatigued, guess what? As a cast member, that's going to suck so bad that your attitude toward guests is going to be that, right? It's going to stink. So as experienced designers, as glorified as the Imagineers are made out to be, and they are, you can't just imagine it as, whoa, they created the world of Pandora. They created a functional and business environment where the cast members are successful, where the people who lead those cast members are successful, and the land makes money. That That's, if everybody could see it through that lens, that's how you're going to be a really great Imagineer. And that's what the studio experience was for me. As an art director leading an entire park, in a sense, you are partnered uh, side by side with those operational uh, groups 365 days a year. In fact, you're there embedded in the park. It's a very different experience than Glendale Imagineering. Uh, and it was designed to be different, right? I was so thankful for that because that really formed how I saw the client. I really saw Walt Disney World, my operations partners as clients, and that I was a unique design firm, uniquely um, uh, created and adapted to only serve them as a client and solution, um, story-driven, emotional connections for their guests. And I, I think that's such an important distinction for anyone who's wanting to enter, um, enter this industry. You have to keep that on the front of your mind. And you hit on the, the operative word, which is emotional. And I think that's the reason why we use words like love and passion when it comes to our feelings about Disney, um, positive and sometimes negative. I think, you know, sometimes people do forget that it is a business. There is a, you know, there's a very important yeah. business part of creating the magic that sometimes I think when we're such dedicated fans, it's sometimes hard to see why decisions right. get made because we forget the fact that it's a company with stockholders and you know things like that but from a um from a practical perspective so where did your where I, i'm assuming they still do where do your sort of handprints still exist on things like the the tower of terror and, and phantasmic excellent well tower is uh been like a love affair for, for for so many years. It's uh, so awesome to have to have worked there. Now, I I wasn't on the original project team of of Tower of Terror in Orlando, um, but as the art director there, in a sense, I was sort of the bearer of the torch, if you will, of that story of that experience. And um, like all physical assets in the world, especially a theme park, it has to grow, it has to change, it has to adapt because it services the guests and the guests do that. They grow, they change, they're interested in, in one IP uh, uh, and for a couple of years and then the interest shifts to another IP in another year. Um, so Tower of Terror is so brilliant in the sense that the story uh, telling the, is this paranormal world, right? The fifth dimension, the twilight zone. So that sets up a story conceit that is almost infinite. You could tell almost any paranormal story within that story conceit. Brilliant. The ride uh, system that was installed also gives a huge range of flexibility 
within a specific motion, obviously vertical <laughs> as the primary um, uh, ride experience, but you could tell so many different stories within that space. So that's what we got to do when we uh, reimagined Tower of Terror multiple times. And uh, so I had so much fun bringing that story to life in new ways. And um, uh, the last, uh, actually, the last installment that we did was was the randomized tower where the computer system, the ride system itself, chose from a series of ride experiences that we created. That was, it was so much fun, introducing scent, different movements, and a really great story from that was uh, to, to really uh, push the tower ride system to find out how many different ride profiles we could actually create. Uh, my good friend and colleague, Michael Schantz, uh, was the ride designer, ride engineer, and he came up with 42 different ways that that attraction could move, right? Now, 42 means it could accelerate differently here, it could stop here, it could move this way. But 42, that's that's impressive. Um, so we showed up one night because uh, that uh, all of the projects on Tower work at night. So you show up at 11, you work till 5, 6, turn it over to operations, and then the attraction runs like it normally does. So uh, it was all midnight jobs. Uh, <laughs> Uh, can you see a, a pattern here working at, at night? Um, so we showed up one night to, to ride test these and to really narrow down the qualities of these 42 different ride scenarios that we really liked so we could narrow it down to uh, the final series. Um, but what I didn't realize is word got out and and you ended up with a bunch of a bunch of folks that showed up, right? The marketing team, well, they wanted to be a part of the decision. And the operations team, well, they wanted to be a part of the decision. And the executive team, well, rightly so. They all wanted to be a part of influencing that decision. So it's like, oh, right, cool. Yeah, you guys should be in on that. A tower cab fits about 22, I think it's 22 people. So we loaded up the cab and uh, everybody got a piece of paper on a you know, uh, to write down their comments and everything. And uh, what they didn't realize was that we were running all 42 profiles back to back, right? So, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down, stop, make notes, and then up and down, up and down. And the, the vehicle um, stopped in the unload bay and then reset and then drop profile again. So all of these folks didn't really realize that. And one by one, we started losing people who were like, thanks, tapping out. Thank you. That was great. Appreciate it. You guys are doing a great job. We trust you. So it was great at the end of the, the cooks out of the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't purposely do that, right? I mean, that would have been pretty diabolical. But at the end of the, the, the time, actually in short order, it was just Michael and I um, and maybe a couple of other Imagineers who were just riding this all 42 times to get to, to you know, to what you would do. So I love that. That's a, it's a fantastic story, but so tower of course, and then that, that led into all kinds of work throughout the company with tower redesigning seats for tower tower in Paris, um, with a whole Hollywood Boulevard expansion, um, phantasmic. Um, I was a part of the team that, uh, um, actually helped all of the area development for getting the show in there. Um, speaker designs and, and um, uh, the retail and dining component there. Um, rock and roller coaster, same kind of thing. There was a project team that came in to do the attraction. My team uh, did all of the area development there. And then there were so many different things, 100 years of magic, you know, the giant hat and working with that and and uh, tons of area development, re-imagining re, um, all of that, the flow of people. Um, we did something that was such a small little job, but it's so cool. And we 
created the bamboo room at the Brown Derby. It's a sort of VIP uh, area, uh, which we used all the time for dining with an Imagineer. And it was so much fun to research an actual real place with real stars and a real history and build what the bamboo room, which was a part of the, the Brown Derby. So it's stuff like that when you're when you're in the park you don't often have the the glory of you know this fantastic you know 200 million dollar attraction but you have amazing fun with all of the existing assets you know one thing that happened um it was a bit of a tragic story in the fact that um the animation business changed for the company and uh, actually creating real animated films at the Disney MGM Studios at the time, that ended, right? So uh, the, the real question was, well, what do we do with the attraction and what do we do with the rest of the building? So I had the opportunity to come in and completely reinvent that uh, attraction. And, and that was really fun, right? And, and reinventing the back lot. And we had some really great museum type displays all throughout the park. Uh, uh, we got to take advantage of film props and everything. And while I was there, we started this uh, campaign where we took one of the unused uh, film studio sound stages and we began to partner with uh, Disney um, productions and uh, we would bring sets from um, Walt Disney Studios and set them up as a tour. Uh, Narnia, Haunted Mansion, uh, Armageddon. That was so much fun and we never did that before, but it was a whole aspect of the business and, and telling stories of uh, on stage of, of uh, uh, film, what it was like being on stage, but then also what it was like being backstage. So anyways, that was amazing. About eight years I spent there and uh, such a great learning experience. Yeah, I, I remember those. I remember like never having seen anything like that in the D Disney parks before. And, and as you were talking, so many different things were going through my mind. One, how no day for you was probably ever the same, right? So very different in terms of <laughs> from both leadership and execution and on-ride and off-ride and, and backstage. And I think too, I think there's an important takeaway for somebody who's listening, both from a, a Disney perspective and as a, a leadership and a cast member perspective, is that, you know, nothing is, is everything is done in terms of, of team and teams, plural, right? There is not one person who gets the credit and or sometimes the blame, right, for things because there are so many to to the point. There's so many chefs that are in the kitchen that help make some of these decisions. And I think sometimes, you know, that gets lost on people that whether either they want to give one person credit and sometimes, you know, if they don't like a decision, uh, you know, the <laughs> the internet yeah. uh torches and pitchforks <laughs> come out for for one person <laughs> in particular and, and it never should really be that way. That's right. Yeah, one of the the, the classic things that I, I really love to help people understand is that it, it really truly does take a team. Um, there are people who are in leadership positions and they just happen to be the ones who are responsible uh, and accountable for a particular project. <clears throat> in the creative side of the house, um, and, and this is a little bit unfair as well, right? The, you, when you think about, quote, famous Imagineers, the people that come to mind typically are in the creative side of the house. So our project management brothers and sisters, right? They don't always get the accolades that you would see of, of um, you know, like a Tim Delaney or an Eddie Sato or, um, you know, that type of thing. But um, uh, or, or a Sharita Carter, right? Who's 
who's heading up the, the, the changes at Splash Mountain. You know, those folks are all in the sort of the creative side of the house. But the reality is it's imagineering. And it's set up that way, very dynamic. And in, in fact, on most every project I've ever been on and any kind of working team, there's always sparks that fly, right? Because you have um, organizations within or categories of, of uh, roles that are completely different. Their, their mission is different. Their objectives are different. The way they see things are different. And the way that I teach it is that there is a creative category, a design category, a delivery category, and then a category that I just call management because it's like contracts and scheduling and estimating. And then there are very specialty categories like ride design or VFX and that kind of thing. But the, the three main categories of work, creative, delivery, uh, creative design and delivery, right? Think of creative. They are nonlinear thinkers. Um, they have to um, always work in a way that is new. It's, it's a risk. I'm always, I'm creating something new. I'm pitching something new. Um, and that nonlinear thinking has to move along a linear path, right? Because if we think linear, linearly, we don't often come up with the undiscovered idea. So then that's creative. If you think of delivery, that's the project managers, construction managers. They are linear thinkers, right? There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a budget, and there's a schedule. Those are all unchangeable things. There's also things like gravity that you can't change, inertia, right? A creative may come and say, we want to make floating mountains. And the, the delivery and design people are like, uh, have you heard of Newton's law of gravity, right? So uh, oftentimes creative doesn't want to be burdened with that kind of thing. So it's, it's that world that I'm trying to, to create for you that all of these groups of people are think differently, they have different responsibilities, and that creates tension. The most successful teams keep that tension positive. Positive tension is what delivers flying elephants, right? Um, uh, the banshee, you know, um, flight of passage, right? Floating mountains, castles. That's what happens when you keep the tension positive and you focus on stuff that's never been done before. It takes a group of people that are sometimes wholly different from each other, but they are so passionate about delivering an experience for guests that they put those differences aside they all find compromises and they work together to to deliver the impossible. Yeah, it really it does. It takes a village, right? Um, but years later, um, about eight or so years later, you head over, or I should say back over to Paris um, as art director and show producer. And, and while I want you to talk about what some of your specific and, and you know, everything sort of under the umbrella of what you did there, I'd really like to, to hear about what some of the unique challenges were about going to a different country and, and to that point, the, some of the cultural differences and learning experiences that, that you had right. to adjust. It's such a great point because I really feel like I didn't, I never really um, learned how to deliver a story in a dimensional environment that creates an experience I really didn't truly understand the ability to do that until I worked overseas. And um, because you have to tell stories 
that are relevant to the culture in which you're telling them or, or why bother, right? It's just, it's wasted. So um, I really learned that in, in uh, China, which I can we can certainly talk about um, uh, in a second. But it started in France. I had the opportunity to go um, expand the studio, Walt Disney Studio uh, Park there with a Hollywood Boulevard land, if you will. The heart of that was Tower of Terror. But we also created shops and boulevards. And we had some, it was really, really cool uh, little land that we created there. Also worked on a, a little attraction uh, called Stitch Live. And that was um, sort of like Turtle Talk. But it was with Stitch. So you had a live performer backstage that had cameras that could see the audience. And, and you had this um, animated character that actually saw you and could interact with you. And we did that in five languages, right? Multiple languages. So that cultural um, uh, factor was huge in figuring out um, the best way to deliver those stories. And it affected uh, me on, on sort of both sides of the line. And the line I mean is the, the onstage backstage line, right? So as a being a, a member of a project team with, a, with mostly international people, um, that was a, a new challenge that I had to learn how to uh, adapt and implement. And then on the other side of the line, on the onstage side, you're telling those stories for, again, a European audience. So it was, um, culturally different than the the type of stories that you would tell in the US. So learning on both sides of that line was really important. In fact, uh, I don't know, the first month or so I was there, almost every meeting was in French. Um, so I mean, there, there was on site, you know, working with contractors and artisans, all French. So I, it was the perfect environment to learn a language, obviously, because it was complete immersion, uh, which I did. And that was a blast. Um, and, and also living in another country gives you the opportunity to live in another country. Um, it's not all about work. Um, it was really important for myself and my family to, um, travel and do as much as we could in the European continent to really learn about those cultures and, and that history. Very, very important, but, uh, amazing lessons and, um, I would highly, highly recommend that for any new professional um, to work internationally um, because any experience you get is going to be great experience. Yeah, and this is this brings up an interesting point, especially as we sort of transition to when you move over to Hong Kong, you know, just a couple of years later. You know, all of these these projects, all these Disney themed entertainment projects, you know, have to convey not just um, a level of entertainment value, but I think this really goes back to creating this emotional connection to audience, especially especially when, like you said, in France, there are people there who are speaking nine to who knows how many different languages. I've been to Hong Kong. I do not speak Mandarin, nor do I speak Cantonese or any sort of derivation of Chinese, but I was still able to be connected because it was able to elicit these incredible emotional responses on both ends of the spectrum, from laughter to thrills to, you know, emotional tears coming out. Talk about that in terms of the emotional aspect. Absolutely. I mean, understanding, like I mentioned before, your audience is the most important aspect, one of the most important aspects of working in themed entertainment. Um, I, I always say it this way, right? There's, there's, if you're working with a client, the three most important attributes are the client's brand, 
the audience that the client's going after, and their business objectives, their goals. Those three elements and derivations of that, it's my job to encapsulate those three core principles with story. Therefore, the story that I develop actually delivers on that client's very specific goals for their business. And that becomes the, the primary um, uh, North Star, if you will, for the entire project. So uh, as a part of that is audience. And as, as designers, um, as, as world builders in this particular industry, we have a very different uh, responsibility to our designs, right? If I was an industrial designer and I was designing appliances, one aspect of my design isn't making an emotional connection with my consumer, right? You, you, when you wake up and you put your toast in the toaster, it just has to toast it. You don't have to have an emotional connection with that device. So it's very different in the world of themed entertainment where that's one aspect that we do have to make when we create an experience, whether it's a live show, a parade, a character interaction, an attraction, an RD&E, something on a cruise ship, there has to be an emotional connection that's made with the audience member, with the guest, and with the experience. That's a very different requirement on us as designers, uh, as uh, you know, imagineers, as project people. And um, that gets you to think about the people that you're creating these experiences for. Because if, if the goal is to make an emotional connection, you can't assume that all of your audience members are exactly the same. And in fact, they're not. Um, so that was my first uh, order of business is uh, understanding my audience. And uh, fortunately in Hong Kong, it was the same kind of scenario. Of course, we had local people um, backstage that were, they too were learning. Um, you know, it was an entire, entire, it was the first time actually that Disney uh, had a product in Southeast Asia, in Asia at all, uh, because Japan is so specific to Japanese, you don't find a lot of Chinese or Singaporeans or Filipinos or, or, or you know, anybody from Brunei who is traveling there. They're just, they just don't. That's a Japanese park. So when Hong Kong opened, it really became, and I think to this day is still the most internationally visited park. You have people all the way from India, from the Middle East, and they go to Hong Kong. Um, so understanding the variety of that audience and how to tell those stories was so important. And it, it, what it uh, comes down to is you can't take any of those stories for granted. A perfect story would be um, uh, early days of Hong Kong opening, there would be tour buses, and there still is today, uh, I, maybe not today because of the pandemic, but still in, in uh, recent times where there would be tour buses that would come from China, they would you know come to the park and they would tour the park as a, as a tour. And they would show up in front of Space Mountain and all of these Chinese would look at this amazing architecture, nothing that they've ever seen before. And they're like, wow, so amazing. And they'd photograph it and document it. And then they would move on to the next stop on the tour. They didn't realize that inside of that incredible architecture, and the reason the architecture looked like that was to convey the story of, of um, humans journeying into outer space, right? That's, it's, the, it's the journey into outer space. Uh, and it's thrilling and it's fun, but you come back safe, right? It's it's the happily ever after. They didn't get that. So we had to then look at that and adapt it in a way that how do we unfold this experience in a literal way so that at curbside, you can understand it, you can digest it. So when we expanded and did uh, Grizzly Gulch, 
um, Toy Story Land and Mystic Point, you see a much more literal representation of the experience. You can stand there and see the mine cars going back and forth. You can see it's a Western world. So you can see that in a sense, the company really learned. We adapted and implemented that differently. So I know I'm carrying on a little bit, but that, that I hope answers the question. No, without a doubt. And I was going to bring up what I would I just, because I've been to Hong Kong and, and I sort of called it the black box problem. They just think that it, there's just this black That's box it. and there's nothing inside. How do you, one, convey this invitation to, you know, stir, almost, and I see it in, in Mystic Point, which I think is some of the most, I love, love, love Mystic Matter so yeah. much. Uh, I love but it. the story begins outside and it's just this natural flow into That's right. that next chapter uh, going inside. But even just how different things that resonate with a, a you know, a domestic American audience don't necessarily resonate um, from cultural perspectives and just interest levels, whether it be characters or experiences. And, and that's, that's right. true, not in, in just in Paris, but but certainly in, in Hong Kong and the other, other Asian parks as well. That's right. A hundred percent right. Um, for example, uh, Base Park at Hong Kong uh, created this really great garden and there are pavilions in the garden where characters will come. And it's it's unique to Hong Kong. I think it was a really super cool idea. They went and then adapted it in Tokyo and other places uh, because interactions with the characters was so ranked so high on uh, in that uh, part of the world as part of their experience. And one of those characters was Mulan. And, uh, you know, uh, one plus one equals two, right? So in, in the uh, original mindset of the team that built the park, Chinese character, Chinese-based film, uh, our company, you know, Disney, they're, they're thinking, works so hard to represent Chinese culture in an accurate way. It's a slam dunk. They put the pavilion in, Mulan shows up, nobody goes. Uh, and it's like we, we kind of discover that that didn't represent China to Chinese at all. And in fact, there, there was kind of an aversion to it. So that's just an, an example of what you of what you said, uh, of, of how you make that. Um, there's other examples, too. Right. Hong Kong, the environment, just the the caustic environment of a island built right by the sea in a in an environment that is humid every single day of the year and even more humid than Florida if that if you could believe that as a Floridian I'm telling you you know stuff just falls apart there if you build it the same way you build it in the US so uh, there's you know a tons years and years of research that uh Disney will do in a particular country or city before they build something. That's good business. That's good storytelling. And uh, as widely reported in newspapers for the last two or even three decades, there's times that we get it wrong, right? Uh, those consultants uh, for Paris said this, that, and the other thing, you open it and the Parisians actually hate it, right? We hate your food. We hate your hotels. We hate this. It's like, well, wait a second. We spent all this time and money on all these consultants who were French, who told us to do this, we did it, and now they hate it. What, what's going on? But that's just, that's just, um, that's the cost of entry, right? That's what you do. Um, and, and things evolve over time. One of the, the points that you mentioned, I just want to circle back to you, was Mystic Point. And there's, if you look at, at Disney theme park history, you'll see that the company itself evolved their storytelling. A lot of the uh, more traditional attractions 
that are are incredible. They stand on their own. There's a huge nostalgia for. They truly are the black box with a thematic bit that draws you in. And Americans get it and they do that. But if you look at more modern, uh, more recent attractions that were done, uh, look at the Avengers Campus, for example, or, um, uh, you know, Galaxy's Edge. That is an environment where the entire land is a story. In a sense, the story spilled out of the black box into the entire land. That is an evolution of storytelling that I truly believe, nobody ever told me this, uh, and it certainly wasn't printed on a wall somewhere, but I think that that Imagineering, that Disney itself learned that from our time overseas because we had to spill that story out. We had to start that story much earlier and come to find out that human beings really enjoy that, right? When you're in Pandora and you're in the queue, beautiful queue to get to a flight of passage, right? Um, you slowly leave your world behind because you become more and more enveloped in Pandora, right? The queue starts outside on the sidewalk and then pretty soon you're complete, you know, you're completely immersed in that world. And that's, that's just turns out is the best way to tell stories. So um, I think that's phenomenal. I think that those lessons uh, um, uh, raised all of the budgets, right? You don't build a Pandora for what you build <laughs> Space Mountain for. Um, but it's, it's just fantastic storytelling. It's the way it should be done. And, and I love the fact that you talk about lessons being learned from an overall corporate sense, as well as boots on the ground, imagining team. But I, and I think you probably had to have a little bit of that constantly and even more so maybe on a grander scale because you, you never worked on hotels before, but now you're put in charge of developing the entire resort team and, and understand the importance of the resort experience and how much time we spend, uh, and maybe even more so in, in the overseas parks than we do here. It's not just a bed and a shower. It's a place that we want and, and, and guests spend a lot of time. How do you approach the hotel design differently in terms of the focus is now not on the experiential part of the attraction and the ride system, but furnishings and finishings and and the, the I know everything speaks everywhere, but how some of these other details become even more important to the guest. It's it's a fantastic question. Um, although I wouldn't consider myself an expert in hotel design, um, and, and we have a, a lot of you know at, at Disney a, an incredible amount of extremely talented uh, folks who who do that. But one thing that I learned about being in, in Hong Kong, and, and I imagine that this changes uh, for the location. So the hotels that are in Disneyland get used very differently uh, in California, Southern California um, and Anaheim. They get used very differently than the hotels in Japan or the hotels in Hong Kong. And what I, what I mean by that is that the, uh, the hotels in Hong Kong will be used by uh, tourists who travel in uh, to stay there and and to visit the parks. That's true. But there was also a huge local population that um, Hong Kong Disneyland wanted to attract to do a staycation. Come and stay for a weekend, right? Just come and stay for two days. Don't even have to go into the park. You can stay and you, you can play here. So we had to infuse um, a different level of uh, a different mindset uh, there and they they were marketed differently, um, obviously, 
uh, than you would market the hotels in, in Southern California. But the hotels themselves, they're an experience. That is what separates a, a Disney hotel or a Disney resort experience from a, um, a JW Marriott, for example. Great brand, you know, incredible uh, experience, but it's a totally different mindset that you design them for. Um, our lobbies in the hotels are designed very differently. Uh, you've got families, you've got um, wheelchairs, you've got strollers, you, you know, it, it's a very different, you, you consider different aspects of designing a hotel and a resort than you would in a city. Uh, designed for business travelers, for example. The restaurants are designed differently. You you might tell a consistent story uh, throughout. And the one key difference in Hong Kong was that the themes of the of the two hotels, now there's uh, three, the Adventures Hotel, uh, but it'll hold true to what I'm about to say, is they are um, unique destinations in themselves. And there's nothing in all of Hong Kong design that looks like them. An Art Deco hotel from Hollywood, nothing exists like that. Actually, in all of pretty much all of Southeast Asia. Uh, the Adventurers Hotel, very difficult to find something like that in, in Southeast Asia. You could find some spas and some retreats that are maybe similar to that, especially in the South Pacific. Um, uh, and then the, um, the Grand Floridian style hotel, um, of, of that of that style hotel. Again, you can find something very similar in in, uh, in Singapore, but not done in a Disney way. So I think that those unique stories, those unique um, experiences, are are what create a draw uh, for locals and for tourists there. You you briefly alluded to the comparing and contrasting building a resort as opposed to um, city planning, and to a certain degree, that was almost what you were tasked with with next when you were brought over back to the states to completely redesign double the size of downtown disney to disney springs bringing in you know 70 not just a few 70 new tenants and really changing the the theme and the mindset of what that area is it's sort of like an urban design project um talk a little bit about this huge undertaking with from what i understand was not necessarily you know, a huge team. Well, that's right. We had a, a, a pretty tight, uh, small but mighty team. And um, that, that was uh, very purposely designed uh, in my mind to, to be very lean and to get as much of our budget in front of the guests as we, as we possibly could. You know, I, Disney Springs, I, I couldn't have been the leader that I was there without my time overseas. So I, I, uh, we mentioned uh, my time in Paris, my time in Hong Kong. I did those two back to back. So it was a combination of six years. And, uh, and uh, I'll allude to why that was so important because we're talking quite a lot about um, understanding your audience and then adapting your ability to tell stories uh, based on that audience. So that learning when it came to Disney Springs was so critical because we, it was not a theme park. Right. We it wasn't a mall. It wasn't, uh, you know, a, a resort really at all. It was a hybrid creation that was primarily um, created by the tenants, third party tenants. So how do you deliver an experience, which is what people are coming to Disney World to to get? Um, how do you deliver an experience when the majority of your build out, your physical build out was done by others? It was their money, their budget, and their brand. How do you do that? So that was the, the, the problem that I uh, was challenged with in the very beginning. How do you tell a story? 
how do you build an environment that won't be successful unless it's uniquely Disney, unless guests go there and they feel this is a Disney experience? How do we do that to evoke the Disney brand, but we do it in such a subtle way that all of those other tenants it actually ended up being about 90 tenants when you took a look at all of the existing tenants that were there that wanted to retrofit and change. Um, a huge job. Uh, how do you do that and let their brands also come through? Because you know it's a it's a, um, a retail, dining, and entertainment district. It's urban design. And if those businesses weren't successful and they left, the, the whole entire thing implodes, right? So it was just such a careful balance and a hybrid approach needed to be taken. And, uh, and so in a sense, that problem became the most fun uh, aspect of it because it was art, design, and uh, business 100% woven together in everything that we did. And uh, the way that we approached that, uh, again, was very different than a hotel, uh, an attraction, a cruise ship, because you, you, we had to create what the final environment, the final story would look like way before we actually really got into full-scale design. And we knew that that full-scale design could be modified and was going to be modified by every tenant during the entire course of, of business. So you never have that in an attraction. You make all your decisions in the beginning. You know what you're going to build. You know the story and you set about building it. Now, that's not to say there's not challenges, obviously, and compromises that have to be made and discoveries uh, that, that, are, that are made that, that create great risk for um, the, the project and the budget. Some say that anytime you stick a shovel in the ground <laughs> in one of our existing theme parks, <clears throat> you discover a whole new world, right? Because, oh, I didn't know that uh, cable was there. And wow, what's that drain pipe doing there? It's not on the drawings, you know. Th that always happens in parks that are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old, uh, 60 years old, right? So those are the challenges. But the challenges at Disney Springs were not just all of that. We had an existing uh, three decades of assets that were going to remain. Uh, and many of those were out of touch with the modern reality of uh, retail and dining facilities. You go into the Disney Village and your storefronts are tiny compared to what you would see in a modern day uh, um, retail environment. So how do you take those three districts that were developed over three decades completely detached from one another. In fact, you had to pay to get into Pleasure Island. If you remember, you had to walk from Disney Village over to <laughs> Westside through the parking lot. I mean, it was, you know, who'd have thought uh, of doing that? It didn't really evoke um, the Disney uh, brand in a sense. Each in individually did, but then that therein caused a massive problem. You look at all the signs on property and you had some signs for... Um, <clears throat> West Side, you had some signs for Disney Village, you had some signs for Pleasure Island, and then and then we called it Downtown Disney, and then we but we promoted them into it was a mess, right? It was a mess. Um, but even as a mess, it was profitable, right? It was making money. Um, and there was a, a whole host of problems. So good on Tom Staggs uh and good on the leadership team that said. Let's invest the right amount of money and let's look at this thing holistically, right? There were quite a few project teams that were trying to solve the Pleasure Island problem uh, with several ideas. And there was a leadership change uh, that, that occurred. Tom Staggs came in and said, 
let's put the brakes on this. Let's let's think about this in a in a more holistic way. And serendipitously, you know, I kind of came in at that same time, and uh, and 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 took this on. And and really, as a team, we established the vision, and uh, and we set that that bar really high from a storytelling standpoint. And we we just began bringing brands in, and we told them the story, and uh, we built an entire legal documentation that uh, gave Disney a lot of. Um, uh, I don't want to use the word control because that's that seems so heavy-handed, but we set up an environment basically that said to each tenant, think of this development as a historic development. And every single tenant, I had photo-documented proof, even Apple, of where they um, had a store somewhere in their chain that was in a historic development in which they were very minimal with their footprint, their branding, their presence and everything. So we took that approach and we said, yes, we know the majority of this is all brand new buildings, but for the purposes of tenanting, you will be held to a standard of a historic district. Therefore, you can only use signage like this, like that, like this, your lighting, those kind of things. And that, that we found was the key to, uh, to really developing that environment. Yeah, it was a, a a unique challenge to say the least. Lest we forget, this this at one point this was going to be Hyperion Wharf, which was going to look and feel very different. And now you have the challenge of creating this story within a story. And you know, uh, Gideon's wasn't was an apothecary. I can't say the word apothecary. And there was a bottling <laughs> plant, a marine, and all these things that that had to, you to convey. Again, transitioning over from storytelling there in that retail urban environment to storytelling at sea. And you really must have impressed somebody up the chain because you were brought on as a, as a vice president over at Disney Cruise Line and, and a portfolio executive over at WDI, where you have no prior experience on, on Cruise Line, but they obviously see something in you to help lead these worldwide teams for the oversight of the, the magic, the wonder, the fantasy, and the dream, and then the construction of the new ships and and castaway. Talk a little bit about that role, which, you know, Theron, as, as I think about it, has to be overwhelming because it's not just the four ships, the, the, the classic ships and the new ships, and then the development of the, the new ships, and then, you know, dry docking one and the space being different and... and <laughs> Castaway key and all the challenges that that each come into play. Uh, yeah, I'm you. You've uh, I've brought out some new gray hairs in your description <laughs> as I'm as I'm remembering. But uh, you know, it's it's sort of what we talked about in the beginning. I, I I told somebody this one time, and I really do feel this way. I I always felt the most um, successful in any role where I was uh, 50% scared out of my mind because I'd never done it before and 50% excited out of my mind because I'd never done it before. And that sort of, it's just the way that I was wired. And that's why I think so many, actually all, every single project I ever did in my entire 23 years with Disney was brand new. When I got hired on at Disney MGM Studios, the art director, I never did that before. I never did that. I never worked in that capacity. So at the same time I was doing the job, I was learning about the job. Went overseas, never did that before. Um, uh, you know, designing an RD&E, which in fact was urban design, where we got to place buildings in very specific ways. And we planted trees in a planter 
the planter was at a height that you could sit on, but the maturity of the tree gave a trunk that you could walk and still look under the tree to see the signs of the retailers, and but the tree still gave you shade. You know, that level of design, it never did that before. So I, I've always found myself in a role of learning about the industry, learning about the um, uh, the, the specific um, market, right? I, we toured the entire United States looking at every single shopping district uh, to, to just learn that. And it was the exact same thing in the cruise line. Never did that before. You know, went to uh, from Disney Springs, which is primarily outdoor urban design, lots of interior design too, but but primarily massive in scope, millions and millions of square feet um, that you're that you're dealing with to a ship that is mostly an interior product. Uh, of course, you're on the deck and everything and you're exposed to the sea, but that is primarily an interior job. So there couldn't have been two more different projects side by side. And the fact that, as you've said, it was an industry I was completely unfamiliar with. Now, I, we had cruised before, my family and I, in fact, it was our still remains our favorite form of vacation. So within one year, let's say, I had to um, learn about the Disney business, the Disney Cruise Line, because uh, I'm designing, that's my client, right? I'm creating something for them. It's got to make them money. It's got to um, uh, build brand equity for their brand. It's got to um, cater uniquely to the Disney guest who sails, which is a unique category of, of Disney guests. So I had to learn our business. At the same time, I had to learn the industry. What's the industry? So in that first year, uh, I sailed uh, with a with a team of of um, people, Disney Cruise Line Imagineering uh, members. Uh, we sailed um, eight different cruise lines in uh, uh, different regions of the world where those cruise lines sailed. Benchmarking. Now I know your audience's first thing they're going to say is, "Wow, the guy lived in Paris. Are you serious? Now he's <laughs> gets to cruise all these times. I mean, come on, silver spoon in the mouth." But what I can honestly tell you is um, you probably never cruised the way that we did. We brought tape measures, laser <laughs> levels. Uh, we photographed every single square inch of those vessels. We documented every single aspect of those businesses. And um, uh, every night till after midnight, I was in bed writing up uh, reports on that because those um, benchmarking cruises really told us and informed us what was what in the industry. Um, so th then after that was a complete blue sky development of the ships um, and doing what's called a GA, a general arrangement. Think of that as like a floor plan, but uh, also think of it as 3D chess, right? Because it's not just each deck as a floor plan has circulation on the deck. In a ship, you have circulation that's vertically and the, 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 um, space that you build over the top of the next space below it, it impacts. So you were building, we were designing and building the infrastructure uh, of that whole entire vessel. And I can tell you very assuredly that we took a very different approach to the three new ships uh, than what's sailing today. Very different. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what guests think of just being on board, not just the theme, the story, the approach, but how we arranged it, uh, how we did the deck, how we put things together. It was so different than what we have now. And, and I was so honored to be a part of it. But but I did all of that in a year, right? That's how you do that to, to learn it. Um, you can't really design anything 
that's worth its salt that will be um, good for the audience members unless you learn about it first. And on all of those jobs, I, I had the, the same thing. Do it, but learn it at the same time. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see the wide-eyed grin across my face as you started talking <laughs> about the Wish and the other ships that are to come after. I cannot wait to get on board because I love the cruise experience. And I still remember the first time I got on board, as I always am, cautiously optimistic because I didn't know anything about it. I said, how are they going to do this? How are they going to bring this theme park experience and the resort experience that I love so much and bring it onto this floating vessel that has no attractions? It doesn't have these, what I thought were going to be these requisite elements. And and now I'm, you know, a monstrous fan of, of cruising. So um, I, I can't was, wait to see You know, that. I'm just... Yeah, I, I sorry to interrupt. I just I'm I'm I got those same wide-eyed grin as well. Uh, one of the coolest things about having uh, a portfolio where you're looking at an entire business. Uh I mean, you know, multi-billion dollar um portfolio, hundreds of people. Um our design firms were all over the world. Copenhagen, you know, uh Sweden, the UK. Uh the ship was being built in Germany. So it's truly a worldwide effort. What's really neat about that is we got to examine the existing fleet and think about it differently. So as a partner to the president of Disney Cruise Line, and we went through a few of them while I was there, uh, but but you know, being a partner to that operations leader is really cool because you then begin to strategize with them and help them think through how to deliver um, uh, the physical environment with the great service, with the great products, uh, you get to kind of think that through with them. And I really enjoyed that. And we looked at uh, the fleet as four different destinations, as opposed to just thinking of, okay, well, the magic sales in Europe part of the year and the wonder sales on the West Coast part of the year in Alaska and, and the dream and the fantasy, you know, they're just a two-cylinder engine in the Bahamas, you know, and that, that's what it was. It was itinerary based. And when we came on and began, you know, kind of thinking this through, we said, well, why don't we think about each ship in a, a, a unique characteristic of their own? Um, instead of having palos on all ships, um, maybe we create differentiated palos experiences. Maybe that's where we came up with Tiana's, right? We create a very unique restaurant experience. Can't get it on any other ship because each ship is a unique destination in itself. So the ship itself is a unique destination and the itineraries that they sail are unique destinations. And I, I was really, uh, it was so fun to be a part of that business development that we got to execute through design and then working with all of the, the incredible, I mean, uh, you know, brass ring, uh, so to speak, within Disney um, of, um, of the operators, right? The, the, um, the hotel team, the um, dining team, the all of those teams are the best of the best. So working with them to create and invent new aspects of experiences, anyways, that highlight of my career, uh, it was a five years, uh, almost five years I spent with the, the cruise line team and um, amazing, amazing time. Yeah, and, and you just you know, quickly, you, you talk about the ships each having their own personality. It goes back to what we said at the very beginning. We as cruise enthusiasts have emotional connections to some of the different ships. I say this all the time that the ship could go out and just it could do donuts in the middle of the Atlantic and I'd be happy because I just <laughs> love being on board so very much. And there, I, I have 
my, my mind is racing with a thousand other questions that I have for you, but I want to be respectful of your time. Maybe we'll get back together and do this again. But I, and I have to ask you the, um, you know, there's almost sort of the, the requisite question, because I think what you are in, in, in addition to being a fascinating storyteller and, and visionary in terms of the things that you've touched is an inspiration, I think, for a lot of people who say, I want to do that. I know I can do that. My journey might be different. My interests might be different. And right. it's an unfair question to say, well, how do I get to be an Imagineer? Because I know there's 140, if not more, different disciplines. But what advice would you give to somebody? Where does one start? What is the the mindset that somebody should be having if Imagineering and, and a similar type of path is what they're looking mm -hmm. for? I'm actually really grateful that you uh, asked this question and um, I, not a plug at all, but that I do spend quite a lot of time talking to individuals this way. So I have a coaching service that I, that I actually give, right? It's called Studio Time. And uh, it's been so much fun to work with students and new professionals who are making that sort of leap into the industry. Uh, also with professionals that are in the industry right now, and I'm doing this job and what I want to do is this, and how do I make that move all the way through to people outside of the industry who want to adopt and take on qualities that we have, uh, that we, that we practice every single day. Um, you know, working with presidents and C-suite, uh, leaders of companies that want to infuse storytelling and experience. So that's been fun. And I say that only to say I'm, I've, uh, I'm grateful you asked me now because I've had a lot of experience kind of explaining that. And I, the, the thing that I want to impart the most to any one of your listeners or anybody who listens to this, um, this, uh, broadcast is whether or not you're just starting out whether you've been in the business a long time and you, and you want to move you know, around or whether you want to take some of these principles and apply them to your business or your personal life, um, there are so many ways to be engaged in the themed entertainment industry or, or uh, themed experience design. Um, you have your legacy brands like uh, Disney and Universal, and I have to throw in Merlin Entertainment because they've got from a worldwide perspective, as many, if not more uh, assets than, uh, than Disney or Universal. Um, those are the legacy brands. And of course, you know, they're the brass ring and you should work hard to, to become an Imagineer, absolutely. But don't neglect the support industries around these, these uh, companies. Um, and chances are anything that you really love, you're passionate about, movie making, you're passionate about building models, you know, you love numbers and you're a, a numbers person, you're a, a manager of time, you're an engineer. There are roles for you, not just in the legacy brands, not just in an Imagineering, but there's roles in all of the different companies that support Imagineering. The companies that build the roller coaster rides, the ride vehicles, the companies that build the scenes or the props or um, that engineer uh, or, or architect the buildings or um, build the robotic figures, the audio animatronics or record the music. There's so many different aspects of this industry and, and uh, that are um, secondary, if you want to say that way, support industries to the theme park industries that I always recommend people look there as well. It's a great place to start. And I'll tell you why. Because if you got a job at a place like Technifex or something, working with my friend Ian McVitie, um, you'd be able to work not just for with Imagineers, 
But you'd also get to work with Universal Creative. You get to work with Abu Dhabi. You know, you'd get this worldwide experience of multiple projects, multiple companies, and it would give you a very broad, very vast experience pretty rapidly um, in a shop that that um, most of these shops have to work pretty lean and have to work very focused where they may not have a $200 million budget. So I always recommend that to people. Um, there's the academic route. We talked about that. There's the route of, of just learning as you go, um, in-field knowledge that's extremely valuable um, as well. The most important tool that you could ever learn, and, and I really want to make sure everybody's listening, the most important tool you could have, no matter what your role is, is your ability to listen. And, and that is any role that you have. Because look, you're going to be working with a client, whether you believe it or not. Uh, if you're an Imagineer, your client is the Disney company, right? Um, and the degree that you have the ability to really listen and really hear beyond what those individuals are saying will give you the ability to tell the story with the right um, level of fidelity in a way that the audience members will love it for generations to come. That's the most important tool that you could have. I love that. Uh, I love every part of what you just said, and, and I love the, <laughs> the the takeaway message uh, as well. I think your story is fascinating and inspirational, and I love uh, the fact that you were able to to share this journey with us again. I think that there's probably plenty more that we might be able to talk about uh, at another love time. Uh, but certainly, I'd love people to be able to find and connect with you online as you continue to share uh, a lot more. Uh, tell people where they can find you. Certainly. Uh, you know, a good story uh, uh, isn't a story unless um, you have a happily ever after, right? I learned that from Walt. And uh, so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to close with the fact that there is life after Disney. Um, after being a corporate executive, um, like so many thousands of other people around the world, uh, the pandemic had a, a pretty massive impact on, on folks. And um, it happened to yours truly as well. So finding myself with, um, you know, being separated from Disney, I said, well, you know what? There's so many things that I've learned as an Imagineer in the themed entertainment industry that is applicable to so many other markets, so many other companies, so many other verticals, if you think of that way, in a business perspective. Um, the art of storytelling, connecting customers to a brand through an emotional experience is extremely valuable. So I took that knowledge, I formed my own company, it's called The Designer's Creative Studio. And it's a place where we like to educate, inspire and guide people on their own journeys uh, in this industry, and um, in their journeys uh, from the industry into the uh, other markets in the world. Um, I offer consultancies and, and I do speaking and all of those different things. And it's just a way to take everything that I learned, all the fun that, that I had, and, uh, and bring those storytelling abilities and experience uh, to life. And you can find me, uh, my website is designerscreativestudio.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, on uh, LinkedIn, uh, under my name. Uh, Pinterest, a lot of different places, but that uh, obviously I have a YouTube channel, which is quite popular because I uh, I put out a lot of videos that are kind of in a sense explainer videos and that are talking like this uh, because I really have a desire to help people to understand uh, you know the industry and how they might uh, find their place in it. I'll make sure that I put links to all of these uh, in the show notes at www.radio.com. 
so that people can find you easily. Darren, I, I cannot thank you enough, not just for your time today, but your contributions um, to the parks and the resorts uh, and the cruise line uh, over your, your wonderful career at Disney. All right, very quick question. What is your favorite personal? I can only ride one attraction globally. Okay, it would it would now this is with uh, the context that I haven't been to Shanghai and there's some some attractions that I would absolutely love to do, but my my favorite attraction of all time today that I've experienced has to be the Temple of the Forbidden Eye in California, Indiana Jones, um, un unbelievable, right? It's just you know Tony and team did an amazing amazing job there. That's that's probably my favorite. Although I'm sure I would love Pirates in Shanghai and and some of the great things. I love Flight of Passage. It's so hard to pick one. Yeah. You know, it's like your kids. Which of my four kids is my favorite? Well, I love all of them, you know. <laughs> but if I could only hang out with one, right? <laughs> all right, if you could eat in any one restaurant, um as we'll assume I'm buying to make it easy for you. I'll take you to any one restaurant uh, in a Disney park or resort around the world, where do we go? Holy cow. Uh, I'm definitely at Disney Springs. Uh, there's six James Beard award winning chefs there. Unlike any place anywhere in the United States you could find, um, it would probably be Morimoto's, right? Um, pan Asian food. Incredible. If you've never been there, I'm, I'm selling it, right? You gotta go. You gotta get the spare ribs. It's, it'll change your whole life. Best sushi in Orlando. Um, anyways, that's where I would go. Nice. We'll have to, you know what? We'll have to maybe get together for a lunch at, at a little place I like to call the Boathouse, too. Which uh, Oh, <laughs> second favorite. Totally. Disney Springs is the fifth theme park. I have said it for, for ages. So, uh, Theron, yes. thank you once again uh, for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Such a pleasure, Lou. And thanks to your audience members for tuning in. And uh, I would love to do it again. Thanks again. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details in what you see, hear, taste, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is brought to you once again by you. And when I say that, I mean it because as part of the WW Radio Nation, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life every live broadcast from the parks, all the contests and giveaways, they are all thanks to and because of and for you. And you can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month and get exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts, trivia quests, monthly group video calls, we have a private Facebook group, shirts, stickers, monthly care packages, and much more. You can find out more by visiting www.radio.com support. 
Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I asked you to simply tell me who was the host, who was your host and narrator of Spectral Magic? Thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that the answer is, of course, one Jiminy Cricket. Now, remember, Spectral Magic was introduced back in 1991 as part of Magic Kingdom's 20th anniversary celebration. It replaced the Main Street Electrical Parade. It closed in May of 1999 and then came back again for its second run from April 2001 through June 2010. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper, the voice of Jiminy Cricket was, of course, Eddie Carroll, who was not only Jiminy Cricket in Spectral Magic, but in the Mickey's Christmas Carol film from 1983, a lot of the Disney sing-along songs videos, House of Mouse, Kingdom Hearts. He was also known as one of the best Jack Benny impersonators. You can Google who Jack Benny was. But anyway, I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for a new WW Radio pin and keychain and mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected is... Rochelle S. So Rochelle, thank you. Congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So this week, instead of a where in the world, well, I guess it's sort of a where in the world, but more importantly, who in the world says this phrase. Welcome to our little trans-dimensional joyride, folks. Just tell me the name of the person, the character, that says that phrase. Obviously, you need to know where it comes from, so you can include that as well. You have until Sunday, September 12th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on the six podcast, use the online form there. Again, you're going to play for the pin, the keychain, and a mystery prize. And by the way, also make sure you stay tuned to my Instagram at instagram.com slash for another giveaway this week. I promise no trivia knowledge required. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. I appreciate you taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please continue the conversation and be part of the community by coming over and being part of the WW Radio Clubhouse. That is our fun, friendly, of course, free group over on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. I'd also love to connect with you elsewhere on social. I am at Lou Mangello on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Pinterest. You can also call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1 with a question, a comment, or just a hello from the parks. And you can email me, lou at www.radio.com with a question you'd like me to answer on the show. In addition to the podcast, please join me this and every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WDW Radio Live. It's our live weekly Facebook broadcast and chat where we talk not just about this week's podcast, but what's new and what's news in Walt Disney World, my Disney Plus pick of the week, top five live, your questions, contests, and anything you want to talk about. Again, that's WDWRadioLive.com. And please be sure to like and turn on notifications on the WW Radio page and the Clubhouse group on Facebook so you don't miss a thing, as I oftentimes will do walk and talks from other locations in and around Walt Disney World. And if, like me, you're digging things like Marvel's What If on Disney+, Plus, but don't want to spoil it for everybody else, come be part of our spoiler support group on Facebook at www.radio.com slash spoilers. Speaking of Marvel... Don't forget to join us for our Marvel Day at Sea, February 5th through the 10th out of Miami, or on our cruise on the Disney Wish, June 20th for a four-night inaugural cruise, or on December 5th for a very merry time cruise. You can find out more by visiting the events page at www.radio.com events. 
And speaking of events, our next meet of the month will most likely be Sunday, September 19th. Stay tuned to the events page for exact time and location. And don't forget that my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World, November 13th and 14th, now has only 10 spots left in this interactive two-day, one-room, 50-person workshop. I'm going to share practical and tactical strategies inspired by the Disney parks and other entrepreneurs and presenters share their lessons, tools, and resources to help you grow your business, your brand, your blog, or idea, and make real changes in the room while you learn, share, network, and make positive progress. And I've decided to extend the early bird pricing one more week where you can save $100 on your ticket. Learn more by visiting lumangelo.com slash momentum. And if you can't make it or if momentum's not right for you, you can see at lumangelo.com how I might be able to help you through one-on-one mentoring or small group masterminds. Thanks as always to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. Whether you're coming to Walt Disney World to celebrate the 50th anniversary, you're going on your cruise, or going out to Disneyland, oh, Avengers Campus, I love you so much. You can visit our friends over at Mouse Fan Travel, not just for the best possible prices, all available discounts, but more importantly, an incredible level of personal service that is their hallmark and is completely free to you. And finally, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, I mean that sincerely, All I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Share a link out to this or your favorite episode. Post it in your favorite group over on Facebook. Tell a friend or a stranger about the show. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over at Apple Podcasts. It is incredibly helpful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Tina C. from Canada, who says, Lou is the most knowledgeable Disney guru. Guru might be a stretch, but I'll take it. Thank you. He has the greatest variety of wonderful people on the show. He's an inspiration and look forward to future shows. Thanks for keeping this Disney fan in the Disney loop. And Klee So says, WW Radio to the rescue. Lou never ceases to amaze me with his impressive guests, topics, and enthusiastic energy. I've enjoyed the program every week for years. Even when you think you know all there is to know about Disney, Lou takes you to places both on and off stage that you had no idea existed and content that blows your mind. Plus, the shows just bring out a smile whenever you need it. Cleso, Tina, thank you very much. And yes, that is the entire goal of the show is not only to help you enhance your enjoyment and appreciation of the parks and the resorts, but yeah, to put a smile on your face and hopefully make you just a little bit more happy and you pay that happiness forward because I believe that positivity is contagious. So choose the good, find the good in everything and every one that you do and pay that forward by being the good to other people as well. I hope to see you on this Wednesday night Facebook live show or in the parks or hopefully both. And I hope that this truly is your best week ever. So until next time, see ya. Oh, P.S. Wait, speaking of events, yes, I am going to do a meetup in Magic Kingdom on October 1st. I need to find out what Disney has planned and scheduled first. But I promise you, if you are going to be in October 1st in Magic Kingdom, I will be there too. I hope to see you then, celebrate with you then, and we'll certainly do a meetup while we're there. Have an amazing week. See ya. Hey, Lou, this is Sean Fitzwater out of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, longtime listener, first-time caller. So uh, I was listening to your most recent episode 647, I believe, and it was about... Uh, art within Walt Disney World, and it was uh, such a joy to listen to something that uh, I actually get to do for a living. I I paint murals and signs for a living uh, here in Birmingham and uh, Southeast area, and 
uh, I was actually painting a mural while listening to that episode, and I was a little behind on episodes, and I was really excited to find that it was a two-part series, so I went back and listened to the uh, prior episode as well, but um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I just wanted to say thanks so much for what you do, and, and uh, uh, I've been listening for years. Um, kind of sporadically, admittedly, but um, me and my family are huge fans of Disney World. Don't get to go as often as we'd like, but we uh, just recently went this past uh, June, and um, since I since I just started my mural painting business a few years ago. Um, and then walking around Walt Disney World, I was thinking, wow, this place is amazing. And I wish I had more time to admire the murals <laughs> that were there. But we have three uh, younger children. And, uh, yeah, so that kind of explains that. But maybe mom and dad will get a trip uh, somewhere years down the road where I can take more time and really take those in. But it was really fun listening to all the uh, backstories and the details of that. So, um, it'd be a dream to paint there someday, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> anyway, just want to say, uh, thanks for the show. I know this voicemail has gone on for a little while now. Uh, so, uh, have a great day and look forward to the next, next show. Thanks, Lou. Good morning, Lou Mandela. It's Charlie Nagy, formerly of West Seneca, New York. I am calling in to tell you that we have 155 days until our Disney Day at Sea Cruise. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. We are going to have such a blast. And I am in the middle of my six-mile walk training for the Space Coast. That is going to be amazing, too. My second half marathon that I'm going to do. Thank you to the WDW Radio Running Team for getting me involved and staying healthy. Stay safe and can't wait to see everybody for the 50th. Have a great day. Love, hugs. That's it. I'm done. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. Faster Hawaiians. And now you.